Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. We're also on free to air satellite past 10 as and you can get in contact with us on Facebook at Channel Africa or on Twitter Channel Africa 1 and on WhatsApp on plus two seven seven six three double zero double three two seven. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, US sanctions, South Sudan Vice President, Escom misled Ramaphosa, says Mabuza, and Nigerians worried as Chad withdraws all troops. In economics news, the World Bank Group forecasts that the sub-Saharan Africa economy will grow. And in sports news, American golfer Veerman leads South African Open at Rand Park. But first, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. The Bill Clinton Foundation for Peace, which has no affiliation to the similarly named Clinton Foundation, set up by the former U.S. President, says at least 17 prisoners have died over the past week in the Democratic Republic of Congo's main jail. Thus, the cause is said to be a lack of food and medicine at Makala Prison in the capital, Kinshasa, the BBC's Gaius Kuene reports. According to officials in the DRC, Makala Prison hasn't received food supplies in the past two months and inmates are having to rely on their families to bring in their meals. The prison has five times the number of prisoners it was built for. Conditions are so poor that NGO groups estimate at least a hundred prisoners are gravely ill and close to death. The Congolese Deputy Minister of Justice told local media that Makala has now received some funding to help improve conditions. The Constitutional Court in South Africa has dismissed an application by Nigerian Pastor Timothy Omotoso into co-accused for leave to appeal the decision of the Supreme Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein. The Supreme Court ordered that the Port Elizabeth High Court could preside over the almost 100 charges the accused are on trial for. The High Court in Port Elizabeth had dismissed an early application to appeal a ruling that it had jurisdiction to hear all the 97 charges against Umutoso, Lusanda Sulani and Zuki Suasitu. The court will now resume on the 28th of January for a fresh start to the trial after Judge Mandela Mukwala Makahula recused himself last year. The charges against the accused include rape, human trafficking and racketeering. A protest against the alleged rape and sexual assault of women by police officers in Malawi turned violent. This after tens of thousands of protesters took to the streets of the capital Ilongwe to demand the arrest and prosecution of police officers named in an official report by the Malawi Human Rights Commission as having raped and sexually assaulted women in Nsudwe, a town west of Lilongwe. Angry protesters reportedly threw stones at police officers, buildings and passing cars, smashing windscreens, small shops owned by foreign nationals, especially Burundians, were also targeted. 
Officials in the United States, Canada and Britain have indicated that Iranian forces mistakenly fired missiles at an Ukrainian airline on Wednesday, bringing the plane down near Tehran. 176 people were killed in the crash. The BBC's Paul Adams has the story. Iranian officials have rejected the latest reports as ridiculous and part of an American psychological operation. They initially spoke of a technical malfunction, later saying the aircraft had turned back towards Tehran airport before it crashed. But U.S. officials are widely quoted as saying that American intelligence detected Iranian air defense radars being turned on shortly before Wednesday morning's crash and that satellites picked up two missile launches and an explosion. Eyewitness video from a neighborhood near the crash site appears to show a mid-air explosion. And finally, it has emerged that one South African National Defence Force soldier suffered a heart attack during the crash landing of the Defence Force C-130 transport aircraft in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The plane was carrying 58 SNDF peacekeepers and 8 aircrew. It crash landed in Goma in the eastern DRC. Bad weather has been blamed for the crash landing. The soldier is being treated in a local hospital and is recovering well. The SNDF has opened an urgent inquiry into the crash landing, SNDF spokesperson Sipiwe Zamini. And a, a quick uh, urgent board of inquiry to investigate the circumstances surrounding the incident is presently being constituted by the Air Force. Uh, there is strict regulation as to when who speaks on what. And until the investigation is uh, completed, um, we will only know then what actually happened. Mm. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. South Sudanese First Vice President uh, Taban Deng Gai has been hit with economic sanctions by the U.S. Gai is accused of arranging the alleged killings of opposition politician Agri Idri Ezebon and human rights lawyer Dong Samuel Luak to solidify his position in government and intimidate the opposition. Addison Ruai, a manager in the First Vice President's office, has been speaking to the BBC's Nicholas Mandrel in Juba. Well, uh, it has been uh, the style of uh, the uh, U.S. Department uh, of Open Treasury of Foreign Asset Control to uh, put individuals from South Sudan, and now they have included His Excellency, the first Vice President of the Republic of South Sudan, General Tabandengai, on the sanction list for some baseless and unfounded reasons. First of all, Agri and Dong were not abducted in South Sudan. We know very well they were abducted in Kenya, Nairobi, and it was not under the directives of His Excellency, the First Vice President, that they should be abducted. We don't know who abducted them. It should be the uh, Kenyan government and uh, security organs in Kenya who should be able to investigate that and give us the details of who abducted them and under whose directives. 
you speak for the first vice president as his office manager. What is the reaction, really, of the first vice president to this announcement of the sanction? Uh, there is uh, nothing new about sanction uh, in South Sudan. It has become a part of life to South Sudanese. Uh, you wake up and surprise your name is on the sanction list. So it is normal. We take it uh, as uh, the way how uh, things have been done, business has been done now by the U.S. Department, and uh, we will approach it from uh, the government system to uh, see how it is addressed. And what is the first vice president going to do about this? What is he saying? Uh, he pledges to continue working uh, with the U.S. Department of International Community and uh, in putting the records right. So uh, definitely uh, there should be a point in time where it will be discussed and uh, uh, the reality will surface and he'll be vindicated. The parties to the agreement are expected to form a national unity government in a few weeks. Is this announcement of the sanction against the first vice president affect the process in any way? It won't affect in any way. And the first vice president is also expected to be one of the five deputies. How would this affect his uh, position in the new government? Well, uh, he will still be the vice president and he will discharge his uh, duties without any effect. Given this serious accusation, is the first vice president considering relinquishing his position for someone else? The first vice president has not committed any criminal offense. And the sanction is not a judgment on the first vice president. It is an event created to confuse a process. And so that does not entail the first vice president to relinquish his position, resign from his position, or give up his office to somebody else. There's nothing that will happen. Even if he's sanctioned, the government will continue to work and he will continue to work in the government. That's Edison Ruai, a manager in South Sudanese First Vice President uh, Taban Deng Gai's office, speaking to the BBC's Nicholas Mandel in Juba. The Deputy President of South Africa's ruling African National Congress, David Mabuza, says President Ramaphosa was misled on ESCOM's load-shedding problems. President Ramaphosa cut his trip short to Egypt to deal with the unprecedented Stage 6 blackout late last year. SABC political reporter Samgele Masego spoke with President Ramaphosa's spokesperson, Kusela Diko. Mrs. Kuselatiko, the Deputy President David Mabuza says the ESCOM board, including the Minister of Public Enterprises, misled President Cyril Ramaphosa when it came to the issues of load shedding, which he said that there wouldn't be any load shedding until the 13th of January, but we've been seeing load shedding for the past week. Was he misled as the President of the Republic? Well, thank you very much, Samgel. Perhaps let me start off by saying that um, we have no doubt that the Deputy President did not seek, nor did he, in fact, infer any malicious intent on either the Minister of Public Enterprises, Praveen Gordon, or the ESCOM uh, Board Chairperson, Jabu Mabuza. Now, indeed, there has been no planned uh, load shedding as um, the commitment that was made. What has happened is that, as the Deputy President himself has said, ESCOM has challenges of age infrastructure, it has challenges of maintenance. And as a result of that, the information 
that had been given to the president on the 9th of December 2019 would have subsequently changed due to these unplanned uh, breakdowns that we have seen. So this is work that needs to be done to ensure that we get the system back to stability. You have already seen and the president has spoken about the measures that we're undertaking in that regard, including ensuring that we expand and diversify generation capacity in this country. So on the issue uh, of misleading, we, we have no doubt that the deputy president did not infer any malicious intent in that regard. And we're all working together to ensure that uh, the system is back online and the maintenance that needs to be carried out is done so as soon as possible. Kusala, I hear you that uh, the deputy president did not mean any malicious intent, but the pertinent question is, was the president misled on the issues of load shedding or not? And did David Mabuza, the deputy president, have any credence to what he was saying about the misleading of the president, rather than the malicious issues, but the content of it all? was the misleading of the president. Was he misled? Well, you remember that the president had made the statement that there will be no load shedding uh, during the Christmas period up until 13 January. And this was based on the emergency recovery plan that ESCOM had put before him. In terms of that particular recovery plan, we were to ensure that a number of units were taken off the grid, they would go into maintenance, a number would be brought back. And that work proceeded and to a large extent was very successful. You'll remember that the system was stable uh, during uh, during, uh, the December period. Now, what has subsequently happened could not have been planned for. And that's why we keep saying that there has been no uh, planned load shedding as ESCOM had committed. These are breakdowns that have subsequently changed uh, the information that had been given to the president and therefore no, we don't think it was misleading. So essentially you are saying that the deputy president was wrong in saying that the president of the republic was misled by the ESCOM and the Minister of Public Enterprises. If you listen to Deputy President Mabuza, he goes into detail to explain to you, Samgelo, what the challenges of ESCOM are. He speaks about the fact that there's maintenance. He speaks about the fact that you cannot plan for certain things uh, that occur. So we're concurring with the deputy president in that regard. ESCOM is facing a number of challenges. I don't think it's going to be very helpful for us at this point to be seeking to pit one against the other. I think all of us need to put shoulder to the wheel. The president is particularly pleased that Mr. Derater has now assumed uh, helm, uh, at, uh, at the helm of ESCOM. He's uh, consolidating his team there. He's working to ensure that the roadmap on ESCOM that we had adopted uh, is, is implemented and the work that needs to be done is done. So we want to leave it at that, at, at, at saying that Let, let's really deal with the real issues. I mean, just today, the World Bank would have downgraded uh, our economic forecast based on the challenges that ESCOM confronts. So aid in infrastructure maintenance, the financial uh, problems that we have there, and the road plan is a good starting point for us to deliver on those. We're out on time, but so you don't concur with them that uh, the president was misled? I'm saying ESCOM is in very big trouble and we need to work together to ensure those are resolved. Kusela Diko, spokesperson for South Africa's President Sul Ramaphosa. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. The World Bank has cut economic growth for South Africa to below 1% for 2020 due to electricity supply concerns, among other things. The bank now forecasts the country's growth at 0.9% in its Global Economic Prospects report. The bank cited electricity supply and infrastructure constraints as impediments to domestic growth. Naledingob reports.
The bank's revision comes as ESCOM resumes rolling blackouts earlier than expected. ESCOM says load shedding will continue until 6 o'clock on Friday morning. The embattled power utility has continued with stage 2 load shedding due to additional breakdowns at power stations. In a statement, ESCOM says its reserves are also low and unable to meet demand. ESCOM spokesperson Digaz Omotai explains. We lost additional generation capacity overnight with breakdowns of over 14,000 megawatts. We've previously said that in order to avoid load shedding, that we would need to contain those unplanned outages or breakdowns to below 9,500 megawatts. We had to use our emergency reserves uh, overnight, so currently we've depleted those to meet the demand for electricity during the day. And as a result, we have to load shed throughout the day until tomorrow. Chief Economist at Efficient Group, Davi Ruth, says other key financial institutions like the Reserve Bank and the National Treasury are also expected to give a downward revision of growth in 2020. Well, I'm afraid I have to agree with uh, the World Bank. Uh, the expectations of economic growth of less than 1% is in line with my own expectations. And it's quite likely that we're going to see economic growth well below 1% for 2020 because of electricity but because of some other constraints as well. Uh, That will lead to a further increase in unemployment and poverty uh, during 2020 and I'm afraid 2021 is likely to see a similar uh, kind of situation. Chief Economist at the Center for Risk Analysis, Ian Cruikshank, says the electricity challenges could see the South African economy falling into a recession this year. Cruikshank says the World Bank's downward growth forecast could be an overestimation. I think that 0.9 is still too high. As, as you know, a few minutes ago, we had power failures here at the SABC. It's going to be everywhere in commerce and industry and agriculture, all of these areas will be finding that they're without power. Without power, you have no activity. We have no new, no new revenue creation, no new job creation. Now tell me, is that a growth forecast? No. So I think the risk is that we could be going to a deeper recession if we don't get the electricity supply fixed immediately. The World Bank sees GDP growth averaging 1.4% in the 2021-22 financial year if President Cyril Ramaphosa's administration is able to ramp up structural reforms and address policy uncertainty and if there's a recovery in public and private sector investment. I'm Naledi Ngobo in Johannesburg. Iran spurned U.S. President Donald Trump's call for a new nuclear pact. An Iranian commander threatened more attacks after both sides appeared to back off from intensified conflict following the U.S. killing of an Iranian general and Tehran's retaliatory missile strikes. The United Nations met to discuss their U.N. charter amid tensions in Iran and the U.S. yesterday. My colleague Simpuang Ngwana spoke to our New York correspondent Nick Harper. Now, the United States, we've just seen, told the United Nations that the killing of Iranian commander Qasim Soleimani was actually self-defense. Do you think the United Nations is buying such a defense? 
Well, potentially not, no. The United States is saying it's self-defense because they say that Soleimani was planning attacks on Americans and others that would have put American lives at risk, and therefore they took that preemptive strike to take him out. They're therefore arguing self-defense. That's important because this is the day when the United Nations is discussing the relevance and the upholding of the UN Charter. It's important because in the UN Charter there's a specific article, Article 50 whereby countries can argue self-defense when they carry out military actions. And that is what the United States has done there. As part of that article, it's important for any country around the world, should they take any military action, to inform the UN Security Council immediately as to why they've taken it and if they are pleading this self-defense policy. That's what the United States has done, and that's what Iran has done as well. They've also been in contact with the UN Security Council uh, to say, that they acted in self-defense when they fired those more than a dozen missiles at the US military bases in Iraq. Now, not all of the countries during this uh, very long debate at the UN Security Council uh, seem to be buying it, as you say. Uh, they have talked about the need to de-escalate, uh, not really to argue the need for self-defense, but rather to take no action at all in the first place. Uh, many of the countries have spoken about that, but also the UN Secretary General has said that there is a distinct need at this time to uphold the UN Charter. He said this discussion was very timely. And he also said that that UN Charter that's in place uh, effectively allows geopolitical tensions to be decreased around the world. Uh, and therefore, he said that this was necessary at this particular time. Well, speaking on the need to de-escalate, uh, the United States is quite unrelenting, vowing to continue with uh, additional action as necessary in the Middle East to protect United States uh, assets and personnel and as well as interests. Now, uh, under Article 51, I'm, I'm just going to quote you verbatim, countries are required to immediately report to the 15-member Security Council any measures taken uh, in exercising the right of self-defense. Now, Nick, we've seen uh, the past few days uh, the hashtag, well, World War III trending on social media and now surely the United Nations cannot condone the United States continuing with such attacks. Well, you're right, Sophie, and there has been considerable concern around the world with that hashtag World War III uh, really prominent over the last few days as we've seen those tensions escalate. You have to remember, though, the big problem on the United Nations Security Council is that one of the permanent members of the council is, of course, the United States itself. So if there were to be any resolution put forward condemning the actions of the United States, the U.S. would immediately use its veto power and the res resolution itself would not pass. I guess that's why it's important to have days like today. There is this debate going on about the UN Charter, but it allows other countries to air their views, to condemn the escalation of tensions, to condemn uh, unilateral airstrikes carried out by both sides. Uh, countries are able to come forward and air those views and to say what they uh, think about what we've seen over the course of the last week. But in terms of being able to take specific action, the UN Security Council is somewhat hamstrung by the very fact that the US is one of the permanent members. 
Now, the United Nations uh, U UN ambassador uh, has uh, told us that uh, Tehran has absolutely no plans to step up a confrontation with the United States after uh, it fired missiles at uh, U.S. military bases in Iraq uh, in a measured proportionate response to uh, the assassination of uh, Soleimani. Uh, what do you think Iran has up its sleeve then to protect its interests? Well, yes, Kelly Craft, the U.S. ambassador, saying that the U.S. is ready to negotiate with Iran, that it stands ready to be able to come to the negotiating table. However, it does, she did also say in the same statement that the U.S. was ready to take additional action as necessary to protect its interests. At this stage, the Iranians have fired back, uh, saying that they think the offer of talks is unbelievable, that from Iran's U.N. ambassador. They think that's unbe unbelievable and unlikely to happen while those U.S. sanctions against Iran are maintained. Of course, remember that Donald Trump, the U.S. president, put additional sanctions on Iran in the last 24 hours. He made that announcement at the White House earlier on Wednesday morning. So those sanctions, that economic pressure on Iran stays in place. It's been there for a last couple of years, and the Iranians say that it is uh, hurting them. They're finding it very difficult while under those economic sanctions. It's unclear what other measures they may want to take going forward. Forward. They're saying that they would not take any more military action. The foreign minister, Javid Zarif, saying that they had concluded their action after they took uh, those airstrikes the other evening, that they didn't plan anything else. There is some concern as to whether they might launch cyber attacks as opposed to any uh, military action, but so far that hasn't played out. That's uh, our new correspondent, Nick Harper, speaking to my colleagues in Puyengongwan. Iran spurned U.S. President Donald Trump's call for a new nuclear pact. An Iranian commander threatened more attacks after both sides appeared to back off from intensified conflict following the U.S. killing of an Iranian general and Tehran's retaliatory missile strikes. The United Nations met to discuss their U.N. charter amid tensions in Iran and the U.S. yesterday. My colleague Simpuengongwana spoke to our New York correspondent Nick Harper. Building Africa with love. Hujambo Africa. If there are holes in this continental ship, we are its children. Let us go and stop the holes. Let us gladly do it with our hearts. And if we cannot, then let us die. We will make a plug of our brains and put them into the ship, but condemn it never. Catch us on Channel Africa from 10 to 11 a.m. every Friday and Sundays from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. Nigeria's presidential aide has assured Nigerians that there is no cause for concern over the withdrawal of 1,200 Chadian troops from the northeastern part of the country. A spokesperson to President Muhammadu Buhari, Gaba Sheshu, says the withdrawal is as a result of a change in the mandate of the multinational joint task force. The force is a multinational formation comprising troops from Benin, Cameroon, Chad, Niger and Nigeria and was mandated to bring an end to the Boko Haram in Insurgency. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Tanwa Ashiru, founder of the Bulwark Intelligence Consultancy Group in Nigeria. 
Well, I think part of the reason why Chad has has withdrawn their troops um, from the Northeast is, as well, it depends on them. They're saying that they're done with their mission, which is whatever mandate their president, who is their commander-in-chief, um, gave them. However, um, when we look at the overall objectives as to what the Multinational Joint Task Force was created for, uh, there were two key objectives. The first one was to restore a safe and secure environment in the Lake Chad Basin. And the second was to reinforce the ability of um, all those countries to coordinate and and conduct joint operations in the area. Um, So if you look at how these objectives have been met, uh, we've been looking at the trends with attacks uh, with the insurgents in the Northeast. And it is true that attacks have reduced. Um, They reduced uh, quite a bit in in 2019, nowhere near the levels of 2017. Uh, So some progress has been made. And I believe perhaps this is part of why Chad is saying, hey, We've done our part in trying to restore a safe environment. We've neutralized the insurgents as much as we can. And so now they're packing up and saying they're done. The withdrawal of the Chadian troops comes in light of the federal government's plans to commence a gradual withdrawal of troops from troubled spots from the first quarter of this year to allow more police deployment in those hot spots because the police are constitutionally mandated to handle internal security and not the troops. What do you make of this? Well, I think the strategy they're using is completely wrong. You're not going to complete, you shouldn't redraw the military before you put in the police. At some point, they're supposed to overlap. In essence, don't create a gap. Um, What should happen is that while the military is there, the police should be deployed and they need to conduct joint operations, joint patrols together. Let the military show the police what they've done, uh, what they believe should be, you know, should happen going forward. And it should be more of a handover uh, before the police can take over and, and resume as, as the primary civil security group in the area. Um, however, when this initial news went out and when the Chadians withdrew their troops um, from the northeast. Apparently, even the Nigerian troops who were working alongside with them also left the area. And I can tell you immediately what happened. The residents in that particular town all left. They all fled and they all went over to Mejidri. And when they were asked, why did you guys leave the town? They said, look, we cannot guarantee um, that we will have any kind of security. Now that this, you know, the, the, the group, the military, the government security forces that are supposed to be protecting them, have left. What the issue is, is that when there's an incident, the uh, locals are able to alert the forces in the area and they are able to respond immediately. When you do not have that team, that group, the forces there, where are you getting that immediate response from? And that's really where the challenge lies right now. Now, some observers say that the Nigerian federal government needs to rise to the situation through more productive international military collaboration, like the multinational joint task force and intelligence cooperation, and desist from further excuses. Do you agree? Well. Part of the challenges I, I, you know, we've seen that the MNJTF had was funding resources. So the Nigerian government did collaborate with, with other uh, countries. They collaborated. I think the EU was, was part of providing funds and resources, vehicles and so on for this MNJTF. Um, and also even we see the U.S. And, and the U.K. all contribute. So um, the main challenge, though, was that these four countries, Nigeria, Nigeria, Chad and Cameroon, 
themselves didn't have money. They didn't have resources. They weren't able to really make this uh, joint task force what it was supposed to be. Uh, and that's kind of where that comes from. Um, again, the oil prices when they slumped last year, it really significantly affected them. And also, I don't know if you recall, but, you know, I, I believe it was about a year ago or two when um, the U.S. had put Chad on, they put Chad on their list, uh, I think the visa ban list or something. And I believe that Chad at some point had pulled out uh, from the MNGPS as a result of that announcement. Um, obviously, they didn't pull out in, in their entirety, but that happened. So we're also seeing a case whereby politics can also affect the decisions that are being made um, in this security sector with, with, the, um, with the military and with these countries' militaries. So that's also another thing. I mean, they do collaborate with the international community, um, but it's almost to an extent of how friendly we are with them. And uh, that was uh, Tanwa Ashiru, founder of the Bulwark Intelligence Consultancy Group in Nigeria. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, at least 17 prisoners have died over the past week in the Democratic Republic of Congo's biggest prison, according to a charity organization. Nigerian pastor Timothy Omotoso and his two co-accused have lost their bid in the Constitutional Court in South Africa to appeal against an earlier judgment that ordered the Port Elizabeth High Court could preside over the almost 100 charges they are on trial for. And officials in the United States, Canada and Britain have indicated that Iranian forces mistakenly fired missiles at an Ukrainian airline on Wednesday, bringing the plane down near Tehran. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Building Africa with love. Hujambo Africa. If there are holes in this continental ship, we are its children. Let us go and stop the holes. Let us gladly do it with our hearts. And if we cannot, then let us die. We will make a plug of our brains and put them into the ship, but condemn it never. Catch us on Channel Africa from 10 to 11 a.m. every Friday and Sundays from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. The leadership of South Africa's ruling African National Congress came face to face with the shocking and degrading poverty that some residents in Colville outside Kimberley endure. President Sul Ramaphosa and other ANC NEC members were shocked to see 44 family members crammed in a dilapidated four-roomed house. He was doing door-to-door ahead of the ruling party's 108th anniversary on Saturday. Local resident Lydia Cox spoke to the president while our political correspondent listened on. Ndebo Mokobo filed this report. In 1994, the ANC promised a better life for all. But for some residents in Colville outside Kimberley, this still remains a distant dream. Cramped in an old and dilapidated four-roomed house, the 44 members of the Cork family were hopeful their lives would change for the better when they welcomed President Cyril Ramaphosa and Isian Toraj in their lonely homestead. In their small dining room, the president was forced to sit on a bed belonging to one of the elders in the family. This single mother and grandmother 
55-year-old Lydia Gok was emotional when telling the president about her daily struggle. Yeah, as your master doctor. Yeah. And V as V here. That's yeah. my sister. Just your sister. Yeah, and that's my sister. Because I'm a doctor. I'm a sister. So, our main concern is our kids. Our kids, our kids, and our kids, how can we survive? How many people survive? 42 people. With kids and all. So, kids sleep all over here? Yeah, we sleep when we come back. And we have a floor. Her first priority is for the president to help fix a house. I want the president to give me my people a workman and my children school clothes and, and food parcels. And then make my, fix up my house. It's broken. Doors is broken. Windows is broken. And the children's school haven't got school clothes. And where do they sleep? Sitting room. In the kitchen and two bed sleeping rooms and honestly in the same thing. And few blocks away, another family of 25 people is stuck in the same condition. The 63-year-old Leah Mahrita Lynch says her home is in the dire state of disrepair and wants help from government. I'm alone. There's nobody to help me to fix the windows, the doors, the toilet and, and the yard. I got five children here in my house, big children, but nobody got to work. The people in the projects didn't keep my children work. No, they love out of my pension and I'm alone. I must pay the rent. Sometimes I haven't got money to pay the rent. Sometimes I haven't got money to pay my insurance. My insurance lapsed. I even got a, a, a bed to sleep on. I sleep on the floor here in the, in the dining room. President Ramaphosa, who was visibly touched by the squalor conditions these people are living under, instructed the local and the provincial government to attend to these problems. And Premier Zamani Sol's jobs is cut out. Now the family is on the housing list, so we'll just have to look how far they are on the list. And we've also asked the mayor of the town together with the executive manager for housing infrastructure to come and check how best they can assist. They are on their way now to meet with the family. And despite all the challenges that the people had to deal with, the president still found the reasons for people to come and celebrate the ANC's 108th anniversary on Saturday. We've had 108 years of struggle, of experience, of doing things, of moving forward, of achieving things for our people. And also in the last 25 years, we've improved the lives of our people. And as we go around meeting them, many of us tell us that. And they say, thank you. We now have a government that cares for the people. Now that is what makes us happy. President Ramaphosa will again continue with his mobilization program on Friday, starting with the presidential morning walk and then presidential golf challenge later in the day. I am Debu Mokobo, called Vilin Kimberley. Police in Uppington in the Northern Cape had to rescue a group of migrants as anger in the community boiled over. Uppington has been in turmoil for two days since the stabbing and killing of police officer Stefano Visachi, a man who's not South African is suspected to be the killer and that has triggered the community to attack shops owned by migrants. Ulrich Henriks reports. The anger is still palpable here in Uppington. Police had to rescue several foreign nationals from their shops and houses and took them to safety. 
Early on Thursday, hundreds marched to the Uppington Magistrates Court, demanding those arrested be released. They were arrested for public violence following the rampage. Community members say they want a drug-free town. We want the Nigerians, the people who sell drugs to our kids, to move from Uppington. We want them out of our land. And the way forward is, if the police don't want to stand with us, we will take the, the law into our own hands and we will remove them ourselves. If the police doesn't want to help us, we are going to take our own action. Uh, yeah, we're going to put our, take our hands and our own action. We're going to do everything what we can and to prevent this thing to happen again. We see our young people falling into drugs, which is a very, very wrong thing to do. So I think getting rid of those people is a really nice thing for the community. By late afternoon, they did exactly that. Boats went to all known foreign-owned shops, threatening violence if they did not leave. Still, the community says their actions aren't xenophobic. Opinion is fed up for drugs. If you sell drugs, please, Close shop, leave Uppington. That is the message that we are that the community are sending today. The community say, close your shop, get out of Uppington. Go sell drugs in your place, go sell drugs to your sisters, go sell drugs to your mothers, go sell drugs to your fathers, because you are killing the generation that needs to lead and take South Africa forward. The community says they want to involve other security agencies as they have lost faith in local police. They vow to continue their efforts to make their town drug free. Police remain on high alert. Community members also came to this house behind me where foreign nationals also live. They also claim that they also sell drugs. Police again tried to intervene and in the process of rescuing the occupants, they found massive amounts of drugs. Ulrich Hendricks, SABC News, Uppington, Northern Cape. Some analysts have raised concern over the new set of regulations in South Africa's Refugees Amendment Act, which, among other things, stipulates that asylum seekers can lose their status if they participate in any political activity. Home Affairs Minister Dr. Aaron Mutsualedi says the new rules only apply to people who are under the protection of the state, but some legal experts have described them as a paper wall to keep migrants out of South Africa. And I'm Konazi Spek to Home Affairs spokesperson Siak and Sally Ganda, head of advocacy at the Scalabrini Center in Cape Town. When we actually not amending the act, we are just introducing uh, regulations uh, which are going to help us to uh, to implement the act. Um, the principal act um, uh, was uh, finalized in uh, 1998 and it became law in uh, 2017. So for us to be able to implement that act, uh, we needed to have the regulations. Now the the, the 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 application of the of the law did not uh, wait for us to finalize the regulations. So some of the key changes that we have incorporated are as a result of the uh, of some of the court judgments uh, which have uh, which have uh, come to help us strengthen the regulations, uh, which uh, essentially are ensuring that we are able to implement uh, the act uh, in the main. Those uh, those regulations cover seven key areas, and uh, all the discussions that I've seen they center around an interpretation 
on one of those uh, seven uh, regulations. Sally Gander, you're the head of advocacy and legal advisor at the Scalabrini Centre, which is the centre that seeks to integrate migrants and refugees into local society. You say that this is like a paper wall, um, that these are these changes or, or amendments, if we can call them. Why do you describe them as such? Thanks for the question. Um, so there are many concerns with these regulations and uh, the exclusions that they bring into force and um, obviously the um, political activity is just one of them. So like uh, Sia said, there are a number of key areas that change. This includes the application process, um, there are impacts uh, potentially on the rights to work and study for asylum seekers. There are also uh, impacts uh, in relation to um, refugees losing their status, so gestation of refugee status, as well as those who wouldn't be able to um, to claim asylum in the first place. And, and essentially what these regulations and the acts that have come into force from the 1st of January do is they make it far more difficult for an already vulnerable group to come into South Africa and claim asylum. And asylum is supposed to be something that... Um, so that the South African government is uh, is mandated to offer to um, people who uh, would would fall into the category of um, persons of concern under international refugee law. One of the uh, other concerns that we have with these regulations is that uh, various civil society organisations, not only Scalabrini, have been raising kind of warning bells uh, to the department for a number of years. Not uh, in relation to the amendments to the Act, as well as in relation to these regulations. And the department has not considered any of those warning bells. And I'll just leave it with this one last thing, is that the Auditor General's report on home affairs, which was published at the end of November last year, says that um, there's a major backlog of up to seven months at some refugee reception office for the registering of new asylum seekers. Alicia, you can just quickly um, respond to what Sally is saying, you know, with regards to the Auditor General saying the capacity issues at the, at the department and the amount of money being spent on, on litigation. One of the things that we're introducing with these uh, regulations is that instead of uh, having, uh, we've got uh, a committee which seeks to adjudicate uh, the applications uh, for, 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 for asylum seekers. At the moment, <clears throat> you need, it's got five members. At the moment, you need three of them to sit to consider uh, a single application. The second point is that only the chairperson of that committee is required to be a lawyer. Now, we are changing that now to say all members of that committee uh, must be lawyers, and each person uh, would be able to sit. Uh, on their own to adjudicate uh, to adjudicate uh, applications mm. only in uh, very complex and uh, very specific uh, cases would there be a need for a quorum of three people at home affairs spokesperson Sia Koza and uh, Sally Gander head of advocacy at the Scalabrini Centre in Cape Town speaking to Ayanda Mkwanazi it's 7.46 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko.
Good morning. South Africa's power utility, ESCOM, has announced that it will downgrade its Stage 2 load shedding to Stage 1 from 6 o'clock this morning to 11 o'clock tonight, Central African time. In a statement, the power utility says this is because some units have returned to service following various breakdowns. Technicians have continued to work to bring the remaining units back into service. Eskom says it is also working on replenishing its emergency reserves. On Thursday, Eskom continued with the Stage 2 load shedding throughout the day. Lebuham Mabangi reports. A dented economic output and shaken first our confidence in President Cyril Ramaphosa's administration. The utility said up to 2,000 megawatts would be cut from the system until Friday morning. The power cuts had been expected to last until Thursday morning. The South African presidency says that the, there was no ill intention on the part of power utility Eskom board when it told President Cyril Ramaphosa that there would be no load shedding before January the 13th. Deputy President David Mabuza earlier said that the Power Utilities Board and the Public Enterprise Minister Pravin Gordon had misled Ramaphosa. The President's spokesperson, Kusela Digo, says unforeseen circumstances resulted in renewed power cuts despite the assurance of the Eskom Board. The President had made the statement that there will be no load shedding uh, during the Christmas period up until 13 January. And this was based on the emergency recovery plan that Eskom had put before him. You'll remember that the system was stable during uh, the December period. Now, what has subsequently happened could not have been planned for. And that's why we keep saying that there's been no uh, planned load shedding as ESCOM had committed. These are breakdowns that have subsequently changed uh, the information that had been given to the president and therefore no we don't think it was misleading. Some economists have warned that the World Bank's new forecast for South Africa's economic growth might be too optimistic for the country to realize. The bank has cut the country's economic growth outlook to below 1.8 one percent for 2020 due to electricity concerns the bank now forecasts the growth at 0.9 percent this year from 0.4 percent in 2019 chief economist at the center for risk analysis ian craigshank you've got consumers and business both pulling back and saying it's not the right time for spending where are we going to get growth from i'm afraid that uh, in, a, in an environment where there's declining electricity supply, where there's declining activity in all areas of commerce and industry, we, we've got to face the fact that that 0.9 may be optimistic. It's a, it's a sad reflection, but we've got, to, we've got to look at the fact it took 10 years to break down the economy. You can't fix it, Mr. Ramaphosa understands the problem, I'm sure of that, but it can't be done in a day or a month or even one year. Botswana's Minister of Finance and Economic Development, Tapelo Mateka, has said that the contract between Bank of Botswana and multinational KPMG, through which Zelata provides external audit services to the former, is not considered for any potential termination before its period lapses. Minister Mateka was responding to a question by a Member of Parliament for Silibi Pigwe West, Tapelo Gorapit, this week. 
Korapeti had brought the question to Parliament in recognition of the fact that KPMG has been making headlines in both local and international media on scandalous matters that question its credibility as a finance and audit firm. The amount of power that Kenya imported from Uganda last year significantly went up despite commissioning new geothermal capacity and generating more hydroelectricity as a result of heavy rains. Over the 10 months to October 2019, the country imported 176 gigawatt hours of power from Uganda, a 60% increase. The higher imports are despite Kenjin having commissioned 160 megawatt geothermal power plant at Oka last year you are listening to channel africa and we continue to rise and shine a sports update up next with figile lingwati First up, it's football news in this hour. South African Premiership side Bidvest Vets will meet Orlando Pirates away in the NetBank Cup first round encounter after the two teams were drawn at the NetBank headquarters in Johannesburg last night. The feature is one of the many mouth-watering early PSL first round encounters. PSL log leaders Kaiser Chiefs will be home to Glade Africa Championship team Royal Eagles. Chiefs will be looking to win double by capturing the NetBank Cup and the league title in their 50th anniversary year. Other fixtures. Pulukwane City takes on Baroka FC. Zizwe United up against Happy Wanderers. Stellenbosch FC will fight it out against Marisbeck United. Ama Bararara Football Club faces Super Eagles. Value University of Technology up against Lamontville Golden Arrows. Bloomfield and Celtic face off with Amazulu. Mbobello United will be up against Cape Town City. Black Leopards takes on Northwest University. Highlands Park up against Utongati Football Club. Passion FC up against Real Kings and Ajax Cape Town face off with uh, TS Sporting, while Jomo Cosmos will be up against the Hungry Lion. The International Olympic Committee, IOC President Thomas Bach, says politicians and athletes should keep politics out of this year's Tokyo Olympic Games to protect the event's neutrality and its status as a peaceful meeting place. The Games have seen both political protests by athletes in the past as well as boycotts of nations, and Bach said an infusion of politics into the Games in Tokyo starting in July would be bad. First of all, uh, the mission of the Olympic Games uh, is uh, to unite and not uh, to divide. Uh, we are the only event in the world which manages to, to get the entire world together. Uh, they're in a peaceful uh, uh, competition and uh, any uh, uh, kind of uh, boycott for uh, uh, whatever uh, reason is uh, against uh, this mission of uh, the Olympic uh, Games. So I ask them to uh, respect uh, this mission of uh, the Olympic Games. The IOC also said that a rule in the Olympic Charter limiting athlete sponsorship opportunities is benefiting thousands more athletes who do not have sponsors or major financial backers. 
Here's the IOC Athletes Commission Chief Kirsty Coventry. Um, so with Rule 40, the conversation really uh, was about the solidarity, the model, um, and how as a commission we very much feel that there needs to be an understanding and, and when we're looking at this rule, um, how we need to look at it from a global aspect and not just from the minority uh, and individual um, aspect. So we're really looking at it um, holistically. We want people to understand and athletes to understand that there are athletes that come from different backgrounds and different understandings. And there are so many more athletes at Olympic Games that benefit from the solidarity principle. Um, and if we can look at and try and get athletes to understand that when you're going to the Olympic Games, you're going as a team and not as an individual. Finally, Golf News defending champion Louis Ostezen made a fast start, as he did his 18-year-old amateur sensation playing partners Jaden Sharper. But American Johannes Wehrmann put together an even faster finish for the first-round lead in the South African Open, hosted by the city of Johannesburg at Renpark in the Renbeck. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, U.S. sanctions, South Sudan Vice President and ESCOM misled President Ramaphosa, says Mabuza, as well as Nigerians worried as Chad withdraws all troops. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today and for the week. For myself, Lulu Gabu and the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Now, taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Simi. Featuring a Sun El musician with a track titled Ubala.